Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. Jeff and I are away this week, but we're going to take you back to episode 128 where Henry Sledge and I sit down and discuss the Dippy Raids as well as Robert Leckie plus much, much more. I did want to remind you if you haven't signed up yet for Patreon, go ahead and go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Bailey's so excited she wants you to sign up. Head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link, sign up and subscribe. Anybody who's an active registered winner by the end of February, going into March, name will be in the drawing for the second print we are giving away. So make sure you head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link, or simply look for Digital 410 Media over at Patreon.com. Get signed up and you'll get entered into next month's drawing. But enough of that, we're heading on back to episode 128 with Henry Sledge and myself. Thank you guys so much. We'll be back with a live episode next week. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for supporting the show and hanging out with us again on another wonderful Monday night. And shout out to some of the uh, patrons who upgraded their accounts last uh, week to help out and help support the show. And if you want to do the same thing, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that link and sign up. But we'll get to more adverts later. Joining us, as always, is the ever-faithful, ever-on-time, and ever-jubilant and happy Henry Sledge. Henry, how you doing tonight, fellow? I'm doing okay, man. How are you doing, Don? <laughs> I'm doing well. Oh, it's been a crazy, crazy uh, last couple of days at work, but I'm not going to get into that here because, well, it's not <laughs> relevant to what we're doing. But uh, no, we don't want to get into the crazy personal stuff that no. each of us are dealing with. No, not at all. So, but yeah, we're just happy to be here. Happy to have you guys join us once again. And uh, we're going to go to the other side of the pond. Uh, we do a lot of PTO talk here. We do a lot of air battle talk here. But prior to the show, I got together with Jeff and Henry, which, by the way, Jeff is away this week and possibly next week, but he will be returning very soon. But uh, before, a few hours ago, we were like, well, what are we going to talk about tonight, fellas? And uh, Henry had a great idea, and it never occurred to me, and partially because after doing some research, this battle, this raid, which we we're going to talk about for a little bit here, sadly it's kind of gone down as a very forgotten battle and conflict for the Canadian Army, even though it was sadly resulted in being one of their deadliest battles. And to think that worldwide, um, a major ally such as the Canadians in Canada, that one of their bloodiest battles is kind of overlooked and forgotten by history. And so praise to Henry for wanting to do this topic. And so let's get into it a little bit, Henry. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, August of, uh, of course, today's August 22nd, but here within the last few days, we're, we're 80th anniversary of uh, August of 1942, which was, we know what we talked about last time, our beloved Pacific Theater was Guadalcanal, but tonight we were thinking about heading to the shores of France and talking about Dieppe. Which... Sadly and ironically, the irony had come later after the result of this raid, but it was originally codenamed Operation Jubilee. 
And what I found interesting researching Operation Jubilee is as the war was progressing and as the RAF was limited on things to do because the um, Royal Air Force had their own bombardment branch that kind of operated kind of separately from the from the dogfighters, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. They were occupying the time of the RAF by having them going over French, uh, German-occupied France and strategically attacking areas. Mm-hmm. And Henry can attest to this because him and uh, Jeff are the resident um, aviation guys here. But apparently Germany was kind of premiering or up and steaming on a more advanced fighter than what the RAF had. Is that correct, Henry? Well, I mean, it- 42, the Germans would have been flying the BF-109E, or Emil, to your code name Emil, you know, which is just the, the name for the, the letter E in the German alphabet. But, yeah, they would have had BF-109Es probably, uh, well, and they would have been moving on. I don't, I'm not sure when the BF-109F came into service. Um, I had a really good book on the air war, on the, the air actions over Dieppe that I read many years ago. And... Just disclaimer to anybody to to our listeners tonight. I mean, I'm I'm no expert on Dieppe, Don. I don't think you would call yourself one either. I uh, learned everything well, I'm about to tell you about 30 minutes ago, <laughs> so it's fresh no, in my well, mind. But hey, man, we have that passion for the subject, right? Well, I mean, we everybody talks about D-Day. Yep. You know, which obviously was June August seventh, nineteen forty-two. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess it depends on, on which which well, we side of the globe about, that D Day means to you. The, are we going to talk about the B seventy two bomber? <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. I'm just kidding. No, I mean, so the Germans would have been fielding the BF one hundred nines. Okay, so the British by nineteen forty two. I mean, the Spitfire. They might have had the five B by nineteen forty two. Um, again, had I had more time to, to re- refresh my memory on the, uh, you know, they were Spitfires. Not sure if they were Mark 5Bs or still Mark 1s and 2s. I, I think the, the Mark 1s and 2s had evolved by 1942. Well, the reason I bring it up is this actually plays a key role into the development and the decision-making behind the entire operation of Operation Jubilee, which I was kind of mm-hmm. surprised to find out. So for those of you playing along at home, uh, much like myself who just discovered this most recently, while the uh, RAF was making these strategic airstrikes, apparently these German Luftwaffe planes were a little more advanced to the point where the British had a hard time fighting them off in one-on-one, two-on-one skirmishes. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to come up with a way to invite the Luftwaffe out in mass, if you will. How can we bring these guys out in mass bring out a majority of their inventory, if you will, close enough to us that we can, you know, fly reinforcements back from main, you know, mainland England, if you will, and try to eliminate as many as the uh, Luftwaffe's inventory as possible. And so right. they came up with Operation Jubilee, which is let's take a bunch of guys, land them over here on this coast, draw out the Luftwaffe in, in the efforts that they're going to try to strafe and attack the landing crafts, and then we can just take everything we have and have a big air battle and hopefully reduce their numbers in the fashion that we can continue to do, you know, air raids over occupied France with less damage to us in future battles. Pretty much. Yeah, I think so. You know, unlike you, man, I did some fact finding today. I watched 
some things that I was able to, to uh, shoehorn in while I was at work, sure. uh, which I can do, fortunately, and still get my job done on D-Up, because I've always been really intrigued by it. There were the facts, the, the numbers I found. Of course, numbers are always going to vary. There were 1,200 Allied aircraft involved in, in the D-Up raid. Uh, British, Canadian, there were even some American. Uh, now, they would have been, I think they would have been like the Eagle Squadron guys. Kind of like the Lindley's guys? Huh? Kind of like the Lindley's guys? Yeah, I mean, it's not like they were showing up, you know, flying Mustangs, which obviously in 1942 is a little bit early for the month, but they were flying Spitfires. I believe they were flying under British colors. Yeah, but, well, that, uh, that, I guess I misspoke. That's kind of what I meant. We kind of had pilots on loan before we actually got involved, and so that's right. what I meant by the right. lease guys. We kind of loaned them pilots as well. I had another another figure that said the numbers of aircraft involved were more like 800. So 800 to, to, to 1,200, okay, on, still, on the Allied side. That's still quite a substantial aerial dogfight battle, if you will. It is, and <clears throat> from from the information I came upon, I don't think, it almost, as I, as I watched and educated myself on it, it almost reminded me, like, you know, D-Day, skip ahead to June of 44 when, mm-hmm. when D-Day, with the mass of naval and army and ground activity going on at D-Day, there really was not a whole lot of aerial activity. The Luftwaffe just didn't come out. Now, to get get away from D-Day, because that's not what we're here to talk about, to get back to D-Up, it was from what I came, from what I learned, um, sort of a similar dynamic. I mean, yeah. there were there were a few uh, sorties by the Germans, but not on mass like they hoped. I mean, there, you know, there were not these clouds of FW-190s and 109s and JU-88s and, you know, there just wasn't this mass level response that the Allies had hoped for that would then give, you know, our guys a chance to to really get some aerial scores. Um, I think, well, in fact, I don't want to jump into it too early, but aircraft lost. You know, if, if you go by the 1,200 Allied aircraft that, that we put up for the DF raid, the Allies lost. One number I saw was 106. You know how many aircraft the Germans lost? No. 48. Wow. So and yet, considered- it's not considered a failure on the part of Allied air. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of saddening and a little astonishing to think that the numbers were so tilted against us considering, as we just said, this entire mission was kind of dreamt up and organized with this one goal in mind, which is let's try to, you know, eliminate as many planes from the Luftwaffe's inventory as possible. And then to come around and have those numbers before we even get to the, the landing numbers. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of, yeah. I mean, the real tragedy is, as we know, was for the Canadians once the guys got, Sure. Uh, and then you're talking about a massive loss of life. Probably, I, I think it's called uh, the worst in Canadian history. Yeah. And um, as we we're saying earlier, not only, you know, it kind of, I don't know if it was done purposefully, but afterwards you can kind of look at it. Um, when you're looking at the landing beaches, the way they're split up into seven beaches, uh, the way in which the landing was coming in and, and almost the shape 
of the landing area. It's very it's very reminiscent of when you're looking at comparing it to D Day, and the fact that it happened what two years prior. Yes. And by the way, this was outside of you know anything going on in Africa and all that. This was the biggest campaign put forth by you know the British since Dunkirk. I mean, this was kind of their mm-hmm. their their next big give it a go and let's see what happens type thing. And the bonus on this raid, you know, the other bonuses we've all heard before, you know, when it, going to the D-Day thing, we've, oh, part of the D-Day, you know, Stalin really wanted us to open up a, a second front to alleviate the pressure on the on the Russians and the Eastern Front. Well, that was kind of, this was kind of like the precursor to that. They're like, exactly. Okay, not only, let's open up a second front, it wasn't as large as Stalin mm-hmm. wanted, two, um, let's kind of, I don't know if this was even put in place or mine. I don't even know if the planning for D-Day had even started being planned yet. I'm assuming it possibly had, but let's, under this hypothesis, let's say that it had. Here's a good dry run for doing a semi-large-scale amphibious landing of men and equipment. And um, the aforementioned, hopefully we can take out the Luftwaffe. And so this this operation had multiple potential benefits mm-hmm. if, if things could go right. And... Now, interestingly enough, here's here's the number breakdown. You had 5,000 Canadian infantry, 1,000 British troops, and 50 U.S. Army Rangers, which I was surprised to hear about. Now, the reason the Canadians outnumbered the British troops, even though this was a British-led, dreamt-up, and um, pushed-out operation, is the Canadians had sent over so many men, and they are just kind of sitting around staging areas all throughout England. Right. And as we've seen in other stories, other movies, other shows, other books, that uh, when you have guys sitting around training for long periods of time, uh, it affects their morale and uh, you know actually softens them up. And so basically, the Canadian higher ups kind of said, "Hey, we're looking for something to do over here to keep our boys, you know, ready to fight." And mm-hmm. so, for lack of better phrases, the British are like, "Okay, cool, we got something for you to do." And that's primarily the reason is there were so many guys over there in all these different staging areas waiting for an operation that they kind of raised their hand and got put in place. And so, this is kind of what goes on to be why this is the largest operation. You know, as we mentioned before, I don't want to give too much away before we get to the ending, but why this goes down in the Canadian history the way it does. That's why there are so many of them there compared to the British and the surprisingly 50 U.S. Rangers. I'm sure they were there kind of on a, you know, a get some experience type situation, maybe to lend some Raider type um, Raider type experience. Because interestingly enough, they were it, they were sent down to Orange Beach. And then, mm-hmm. and as we were saying again, their, their situation was kind of similar to what they would be, you know, objected to do at Point de Hoc on D-Day, which was to go occupy some particular area for a certain amount of time, then get the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. And so those were the numbers going in. Do you know how many ships were involved? Um, I know that there was, I think, um, about 200 and something airplanes. Let's see here. Um, no, Germany. Germany had... Um, <coughs> No, okay. Yeah, we had 230 ships and landing crafts um, who left mm-hmm. England on the 8th. But no, I'm not sure what the, the numbers were. Well, the, the number of ships, what I what I saw in, in my pulling down some figures on the DF parade was 250. Okay. The largest 
lot of landing craft, as you said. The largest vessel was a destroyer. Those were, were destroyers. There was nothing bigger. If I read it right, there was nothing larger than a destroyer involved in the Dieppe raid. True, which will go to part of the reason why the raid was such a, I don't want to say blunder, but such a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. I guess two years prior, once again, I'm not up to speed on my British military history. Shame on me. We're it's trying. okay, neither am I. But we're winning in this one, man, but, but we're having a good conversation. But apparently the British Navy lost like three to four of their main quote-unquote captain ships, their large-scale battleships, carriers, and what, what have you. And so due to those losses, the British Navy was very reluctant to put their ships within close striking range from German artillery. Mm -hmm. And since this was the case, they basically said, hey, we only feel safe setting X amount of distance from the shore. And so they did not do your standard naval pre-invasion bombardments. They didn't sit out there like we did on Guadalcanal and many of other missions, just bombing the hell out of the island for, you know, eight hours prior. That never happened. And right. so, so now you have these guys who are going to be potentially landing on these beaches in well-fortified, very little pre-invasion molesting going on. And obviously the plan that failed on D-Day as well was the pre-beach bombardment means you have craters to hide in. Let me, let me go back to what you just said. Sure. So British naval losses prior to Dieppe, yep. which obviously would have put the scare into them. Um, what comes to my mind, and I'm assuming you, you, you're you not just limiting that to the ETO, right? You're just talking about wherever. And when I was doing research, they listed the vessels by name, but I just didn't have time. To was it Prince down. of Wales and Repulse? Yes, and another off one. Off the shores of Singapore? Yes, uh, yes, yeah. correct. They were sunk by Japanese, yes. Right. By and, Japanese G4M and G3M bombers, and this which is, came out of what is present-day Vietnam, by the way. The historian referred to them as capital ships, meaning their main vessels. And so right, due to the right. loss of capital ships, in quotes, they were reluctant to lose more of their capital ships on this one operation. But yes, sure. you're absolutely correct. They were sunk in, off by the Japanese Air Force. And it's probably... There were others, too, but the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, also known as... I think that was... Force Z, I think, was the code name of of them when they were operating the waters off of Singapore. And I may be partially correct or showing my ignorance when I shouldn't have ignorance on that. But, you know, and that was early. And I mean, that was like right after Pearl Harbor. So, yeah, they would have they would have been extremely reluctant to put um, heavy naval resources in harm's way. Yeah. So it was minimized. I'm looking here. It was actually minim minimized. The pre-landing naval gun support was limited consisting of only six six hunt class destroyers each with four or six four inch guns. So that was basically their their pre landing invasion bombardment and artillery strike was supported by four and six inch guns off of these six different vessels. That's it. Okay. According to what I'm seeing, I'd like to know if what you're looking at corroborates this. You know how many vessels were sunk? Um I'm not I'm not seeing it here, but go ahead. I, what I came up with was one. There was one destroyer lost. Yeah. 106 aircraft. You know how many landing craft were lost? Oh, I can only imagine, especially off of Blue Beach. What, I, what I'm seeing here was 33. 33 yeah. landing craft. Yeah, and so... Um, and I'm, I've got a number here on... You know, Armor, of course, was put ashore to try to help. I mean, the thing... Well, the to big rub is, too, is um, 
German double crossers, or let's say, I guess it'd be French double crossers. Um, Germany got tipped off like two to three days prior. I guess some planning uh, leaked out because one of the other objectives to this invasion, as we said, the object, the, the primary objective was to pull out the Luftwaffe, try to damage as much as they could. But two, we're going to give our guys objectives as well. So their objectives was a to take out any coastal military installations, take right. take German POWs, look for intel, but also try to um, evacuate fifteen freed French resistance fighters who I guess have been feeling pressure by the local Germans who were occupying the area. And so we're kind of trying to go on a you know a little recovery run as well. And but. Uh, hypothetically, mission-wise, they're only supposed to be in town 24, 48 hours at the most. It was like a yeah, hit this, run. This was this was not a get in and establish a major beachhead from which to bridge onto, you know, like obviously D-Day. We're supposed to go ashore. We're supposed to establish a major base of supply communications and then press 